0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So
2: let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. All right. The guardian got a fantastic write-up about a fairly tragic incident. Essentially, a sailing crew was rescued after a giant whale sank their 44-foot boat in the Pacific Ocean. And it was pretty harrowing. Although the way that it was written, or at least reported in The Guardian, calls to mind the movie Captain Ron. Has anybody?
3: (laughs) Yeah. It was one my dad forced me to watch over and over again.
2: The top gun of the sailing world, except Uh, less serious, maybe. (laughs) Yes, yes. So let's start from the beginning with Rick Rodriguez. He and three friends, they had planned a three-week sailing trip from the Galapagos Islands to French Polynesia. It's about 3,500 miles away in the South Pacific. According to the article, Rodriguez was enjoying a vegetarian pizza for lunch, but then he heard a loud noise. Quote, The second pizza had just come out of the oven and I was dipping a slice (laughs) into some ranch dressing, Rodriguez said to the post. This is where it gets uh, Captain Ron, okay? (laughs) (laughs) The quote goes on, the back half of the boat lifted violently upward and to starboard. Other members of the crew were thrown by the large impact, but each saw from different angles that a whale had smashed into the boat. According to Alana Litz. I saw a massive whale off the port aft side with its side fin up in the air. Yeah, if it
0: had fingers,
2: there would have been a finger involved, too, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so five seconds after the whale's collision, an alarm sounded warning that the boat was filling with water. The alarm was correct. So salt water is spilling into the vessel. Others in the boat At this time are gathering food, emergency equipment, other gear, as well as fresh water. They know what they need to do to just stuff all of this into the lifeboat and the dinghy. They had grabbed pretty much all of this, including safety supplies, but they did not have enough time to get their passports, which also feels like a fiction movie plot point, if you know (laughs) what I'm saying. But they did have a phone, a satellite Wi-Fi hotspot, and an external battery, all of which were minimally charged. Attention. So, first, Rodriguez messaged his friend and fellow sailor, Tommy Joyce, about the situation. And Joyce was sailing the same route as Rodriguez, just about 180 miles behind. The message was as follows Tommy, this is no joke. We hit a whale and the ship went down. <laughs> Rodriguez sent a similar message to his brother, Roger, adding, Tell mom it's going to be okay. <laughs> and then Rodriguez asked his brother to send an additional message to Tommy Joyce, but on WhatsApp, because apparently Joyce checked the social messaging app more frequently than the like emergency transfer. Right, right. So after turning off the Wi Fi hotspot for two hours just to save battery power. Rodriguez got a message back from Joyce, quote, we got you, bud. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So hours later, Rodriguez and the crew joined the Rolling Stones, a 45-foot boat captained by Jeff Stone. Uh Stone had received one of Rodriguez's mayday calls from a friend and coordinated a rescue of Rodriguez's group with Joyce and Peruvian officials.
3: I mean, it's Pacific Ocean is huge. The fact that that other boat was even 10 hours close. Oh, yeah.
2: Look, if Mm. you're going to charter a 44 foot sailboat and like you're going all the way out to Galapagos, you know, the wildlife is sick of our stuff, right? Yeah. Make sure
0: there's another boat behind you. (laughs)
1: Exactly.
0: It's the buddy system.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. Next link. Next Next link.
1: link. This article comes to us from ArsTechnica.com, and it's titled, Journalist Plugs-In Unknown USB Drive Mailed to Him. It Exploded in His Face.
2: Whoa. Yeah, but journalists, like, they probably get that kind of stuff all the time,
1: right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe not necessarily exploding USB (laughs) sticks, (laughs) but they're certainly (laughs) targets. So, as reported by the agency France Press via CBS News, on Tuesday, five Ecuadorian journalists have received USB drives in the mail from Quinsaloma. Each of the USB sticks was meant to explode when activated. Upon receiving the drive, Lenin Artieda of the Equavisas TV station in Guayaquil suffered mild hand and face injuries and no one else was harmed. The flash drive had a 5-volt explosive charge and is thought to have used RDX. Also known as T4, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, militaries, including the US, use RDX as a base charge for detonators or mixed with other explosives such as TNT. Only half of it was activated in the drive that Artieta had plugged in, which likely saved him from more harm. Hmm. On Monday, Funda Medios, an Ecuadorian nonprofit focused on media rights, put out a statement on the incidents which saw letters accompanied by USB stick bombs sent to two more journalists in Guayaquil and two journalists in Ecuador's capital. Milton Perez at Telia Mazonas' Quito offices might have set off the USB stick explosives if he had plugged it into the computer properly. <laughs>
0: It's like the USB thing. You always go top first, then bottom, then you got to flip back. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then you just, after a certain point, you give up yeah. and then you're saved from the explosion. So. <laughs> so what's driving these attacks? The advocacy group said the drive that exploded came with a letter threatening Artieta, while the letter accompanying the threatening drive sent to Perez in Quito had a message claiming in part, this information will unmask Corremo." Correismo is an Ecuadorian political movement named after former President Rafael Correa, who was Ecuador's president from 2007 until 2017. AFP noted other recent violence around Ecuadorian media stations, including a shooting at the RTS TV station where an alleged shooter reportedly left behind a pamphlet signed by a Mexican cartel and threatened a newspaper director. In 2020, there was reportedly a bomb explosion at Teleamazonas, which also received an RDX laced USB drive this month. But no matter who's behind the dangerous attacks on journalists, these unsettling tales should serve as an umpteenth reminder that just like you shouldn't open unknown attachments or download suspicious files, you shouldn't stick unknown USB drives, especially ones randomly mailed to you into anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got to admit, in hearing about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course you wouldn't plug a random USB into your computer. But honestly, if I got one in the mail, I'd be really curious. <laughs> It'd be really hard not yeah. to do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah especially if it had a scoop you're like this yeah. is a secret about you know your family or something like that but as
2: a journalist i mean shouldn't you have some kind of like burner laptop just in case it does have yeah. some kind of terrible worm virus or i don't know
0: explosive i bet they will now
1: right <laughs> like- yeah i mean typically you'd be fine just with a virtual machine or virtual box right you plug it into that a separate throwaway computer but the fact mm. that it explodes right I mean, now you need yeah. a robot to plug it in for you Ugh. like it's a whole thing yeah mm-hmm. luckily you know USB. Speed drives seems may not be the best conveyance method for explosives, but still be careful. Don't just plug random things in. Wow. Okay. I'll stop doing that now. Right. Fine. <laughs> there
0: go my weekend plans. <laughs> <laughs> like.
1: <laughs> Next link.
2: Next,
3: Next link. link. Okay. This comes from The Guardian. Gunned down and burned by the Nazis. The shocking true story of Bambi.
2: <laughs> Wait, okay.
3: the title's a bit hyperbolic, <laughs> but it's been about 100 years since the original German publication, Bambi, A Life in the Woods, and its original story and treatment after publication are becoming relevant again, really. So it was written by a man named Felix Salton, an Austro-Hungarian. Both the novel and the movie have Bambi learning about the natural world, and both his mother is shot and killed by hunters, and both have him growing into adult dead. However, Fahlein, Bambi's love interest, was his cousin. Oh. Uh -oh. (laughs) Uh-oh. It was a different time. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But the biggest crucial difference between Salton's novel and Disney is that he wrote it for adults. Mm. Really? Yep. And attempts to change it and market it towards children even predate Disney's acquisition. It was sold in 1939. And an English translation toned down the violence and the gore already before Disney got it, mm-hmm. and Salton hated it.
0: Oh, sure. He
3: wrote to his publisher, "quote I beg of you most urgently, quite apart from softening, not to advertise my work as a children's book." And to be fair, even with the softening of the violence and gore, the threat of being hunted is still terrifying. Apparently Stephen King called it the first horror movie he ever saw. (laughs) But in the book, Bambi's path is even darker. So Bambi's mother and his cousin Gobo are both killed. Bambi's also shot, only to be saved by a stag that's implied to be his father. Uh, but then that stag dies Leaving <laughs> yeah, leaving Bambi completely alone You know, I can't imagine why Disney changed the ending Right, right, right on that one. Yeah. Wait,
2: but why did they think this was, like, primo material to be working with in the first place?
3: I don't know It's because it's, you know, got animals in it Because
0: Disney was insane Like <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> fairer, fairer point. Right, right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Jack Zipes translated the original German recently and says Salt and Ending" has a very deep meaning. It asks the questions: How do we deal with our loneliness? How do we deal with life in a brutal situation? And these animal characters are there to make points about humankind. Right? It's mm. Animal Farm kind right, of thing. Right. But predates Animal Farm. So Zipes believes, "quote It's quite evident." that the shooting and the treatment of the animals are an allegory of the situation Jews found themselves in at the time. Mm. So in 1935, Sultan's Bambi novels were banned and burned because they were viewed as Jewish propaganda.
2: Uh, Wow. Which
3: also meant he and his wife eventually had to leave Austria because Austria was annexed Mm. in 1938 by Germany, and they moved to Switzerland where he remained until he died. OK, so here's the part where I may get in trouble with Disney. So I'm <laughs> to edit this part out. The too. lawyers are
0: coming, man.
3: Uh, <laughs> just even saying the word, I think somehow they're in on this conversation already. <laughs> so either Walt didn't read Bambi as anti-fascist or just. Flat out chose to ignore that aspect mm. and strip the story of any political or historical roots. He sanitized it. Bambi was even altered from a European native roe to a California mule deer. <laughs>
2: <Was> <laughs> they even they changed the species. Yeah. Wow. Uh,
3: so Zypes, the translator. Oh, he hates the movie. Sure. Yeah. He mentions that Salton saw the movie three years before his death. Uh, <laughs> it but slowly he it.
0: killed him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: He was, he was already in a dreadful condition. Mm. And this is all oh. he had to say about it Quote, Yes, it was a very fine film, and I like it. That's it.
2: <laughs> he was ready. He was ready for the end. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and the cute Bambi endured, right? In the movies and video games, cameos, product placements. There, there's even talk of a live action Bambi remake.
0: Yeah. yeah. I Just mean, please
3: don't make the mouth move, Disney. Just don't <laughs> make the mouths move. Nobody really likes that. It's weird.
0: Yeah. Uh, or it'll be like cats where they put buttholes on all of the deer. like. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And given all the trouble with Disney, you know, has had in Florida recently, <gasps> maybe maybe the live action remake of the original novel starring The Rock as Bambi. Yes, <laughs> we
2: can call it Bambo. Oh, Bambo. there we go. Yeah,
1: Bambi. I was l- literally thinking a Rambo crossover scene. That's
2: it. Disney, you got it. Here you go. This is how you bring the right wingers back into the fold. You can have that. Next link. Next,
3: Next link. link.
0: All right. Well, this next story from The Guardian has uh, quite a few similarities to Angie's first article, weirdly enough. But it's a great reminder of no matter how weird you think your childhood was, someone else had it weirder. (laughs) (laughs) It's called How an Endless Round-The-World Voyage Stole My Childhood. Whoa! And Ah. this whole thing is an excerpt from a new memoir by Suzanne Haywood, who was seven years old in 1976 when her father suddenly announced one day at the breakfast table that someone needed to mark the 200th anniversary of Captain Cook's third voyage around the globe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And spoiler alert, that someone would be their family. She asked her dad if he was joking. He was not. She asked how long they would be gone. And he told her three years. (gasps) Oh! So later that summer, he bought a ship called Wave Walker that he got a great deal on because it was only half constructed at the time. And (laughs) (laughs) there are pictures in the article. It probably is about one of those 44 foot ships. You can see it kind of hits that sweet spot of being just big enough to technically house a family of four plus three crew members, but not nearly (laughs) big enough to be spending 24 hours a day on for years at a time. Unfortunately, their dad wasn't what you would call the most experienced sailor in the world, so they were frequently off course, and either through poor planning or lack of money, they almost never had enough food on board. She recalls her dad cheerfully telling her to just whack her biscuit against the table to knock off most of the weevils, and the rest would be a great source of protein. Oh. And one of the things this excerpt does not talk a lot about is what Haywood's mother was doing through all of this. But the loose implication is that she maybe had some mental health issues that are perhaps addressed in a different chapter of the memoir. Regardless, it seems pretty clear that her mom wasn't actually that interested in homeschooling her two children on a boat for years at a time. So she just didn't. Haywood remembers doing a few worksheets in the beginning, but basically her education stopped at age seven and didn't resume for a long time afterward. But it was when they tried to go around the Horn of Africa for the first time that things got really bad. They got caught in a storm blowing in from the South Pole, and after struggling for hours on the 50-foot waves, the ship was knocked over completely. Haywood was thrown headfirst against the ceiling, and the next thing she remembers, she was lying on a bunk covered in blood while the adults struggled to cover the giant hole in the deck with a plastic tarp. They continuously bailed water for the next several days until they reached Eel, Amsterdam, a tiny island in the Indian Ocean. At that point, the island's only doctor told her family that she had a broken nose, a fractured skull, and pressure was rapidly building up inside her skull. Her father's first question was, what if we do nothing? But the doctor (laughs) assured him that that would cause her brain damage or even death. So he finally agreed to pay for the treatment since they had to stay long enough to repair the ship. Anyway. Wow. Haywood had a total of seven operations on her head without anesthetic until finally everything was more or less safe for her to continue traveling, which they promptly did. By the time they reached Hawaii, she was nine years old and had been sailing for two years and 223 days. And Hawaii was supposed to be the end of their trip. Because Captain Cook had been killed in Hawaii, and despite all their difficulties, they'd arrived there just a little over 200 years after his death. But rather than go home to England, they just kind of kept hanging out in Hawaii, while her father tried various schemes to raise money for more travel, including setting up an exhibition about their trip and asking for donations. And even though they were off the ship now, Haywood and her brother were never enrolled in school, presumably because her parents were convinced they would be leaving again any day now. And this went on for years until finally, just after her 12th birthday, her dad sat them down for a family meeting and asked whether they wanted to sail home through the Panama Canal, which would be a relatively short trip, or else go back across the Pacific and basically do their previous three-year journey in reverse. (laughs) Mm. The two kids voted to go home, and their dad said, well, I know I said we were going to vote, but this isn't actually a democracy, and I've decided we're going to keep sailing.
3: Oh, that sounds like my dad.
0: The silver lining... (laughs) The silver lining was that Haywood had developed a ton of independence by now, and she became fully determined to escape. So during one port stop in Australia, she managed to get herself registered for a correspondence school, which allowed her to hide on the ship and study while they were out at sea, then mail in her assignments whenever they reached a port with a working post office. Wow. And that, again, went on for years, until one day, when she was 16, her father made a new announcement. He had taken a job as a theme park manager in New Zealand, so he was, <laughs> so was going to go do that while their mom stayed in the port and oversaw the annual repairs to the ship. The two kids, in the meantime, were going to live alone halfway between the two parents in a small town called Rotorua so that Haywood's 15-year-old brother could be enrolled in school for the first time. Wow, what a great
2: plan. Did this father ever get treated for his severe ADHD? Or, you know,
0: narcissism, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, fair. (laughs) And since Haywood was already nearly done with her correspondence school and was already super good at cooking and cleaning on the ship, she could just keep doing that and taking care of her brother in the little hut in Rotorua. And honestly, she was sort of okay with this plan because at least it meant she had some freedom. But mm-hmm. then a couple months later, her dad said, oops, never mind. I quit the theme park job and your mom and I are going to go sail away again. You two can just keep staying here. And what? Heywood was wow. like, how am I going to pay for things? And he was like, ah, I can send some money sometimes if you need it, but you'll have to be frugal. So why did he take this long to essentially abandon them? <laughs> I know. It feels like it should have happened sooner. <laughs> so her parents disappear and she and her brother just keep scraping by for seven months until Haywood's New Zealand visa is about to expire. And she goes to the immigration office and the official says, no, you have to bring your parents here in person to do the paperwork because you're not allowed to be an unaccompanied minor just living in the country. (coughs) And she calls her dad and tells him this. And he's like, nah, I'm too busy. I can't do it. So she basically throws herself at the feet of this immigration officer and says, look, I just need one more month to take my scheduled test and graduate high school. That's all I need. And he says, fine, I'll extend you for one month if you bring me a plane ticket to England with your name on it, showing that you are going back to your home country in a month. So she figures out the cheapest flight and she calls her dad and she sells him on it as basically a $600 fee to let her stay until he can come back in person to renew her visa himself. (laughs) So he agrees to it on the sort of unspoken understanding that they'll refund the ticket in a month when he gets back. Instead, She takes her test. She gets on the plane. She's out of there. (laughs) Yay! But that's where it ends. So we have no idea what happened to the brother or if she ever spoke to either of her parents again. Presumably, that's covered in the rest of the memoir, if you want to check it out. I got to admit, reading this, first of all, I was tearing up. Second of all, I was like, I yeah. feel like I need to read this book. This sounds horrifying yeah. and good yeah. for
2: her, man. I no. only want to read this if it, like, continues with the, like, she kicked ass and it's not just, like, a litany of, like, here's the effect of that trauma on us that we right. are still
0: dealing with. Yeah,
2: for sure. that seems more likely.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. And honestly, I don't know if I can handle a trauma memoir right now. Like like I said, this article made me cry. So that alone, yeah. I'm like, hmm. Yeah, I probably no, don't. No, we're already swimming
2: in it. Yeah, good yeah. God.
0: But if I don't read it, that means that I can choose to believe that it all worked out okay. <laughs> <laughs> <And> then... Exactly.
2: <laughs> Sadly,
3: ever after.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link.
2: Okay, good news, everyone. Neurosciencenews.com is reporting that a novel drug makes mice skinny even on a
0: sugary, fatty diet. Yay. Uh oh.
3: I mean, oh no. <laughs>
0: You don't sound very excited. This is like, you could give me heroin and I won't get addicted. Like, I don't know that it's good. (laughs) No, no. This has got
2: a bit more science and it is quite Mm. targeted, although it does involve some biological terms that I am at least vaguely familiar with that do seem somewhat important. But let's get into it here. So, And this is coming out of the University of Texas at San Antonio, just down the street from us. And what the research team first started looking at was how magnesium impacts metabolism, which is the production and consumption of energy in cells. And magnesium plays a lot of roles in good health. Uh, It regulates blood sugar and blood pressure. It's involved with building bones. But the researchers found that too much magnesium slows energy production in mitochondria Now, if you remember from your old biology lessons, mitochondria are... Oh, come on. The
0: powerhouse of the cell. Come
2: on. She remembers. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That was was drilled into me, so it's memory for me too. But basically what the molecule does is it just puts the brake on it. So it basically resulted in more efficient metabolism of sugar and fat in these power plants. And the result? Skinny, healthy mice. Not only that, the liver and adipose or fat tissues in the rodent's showed no evidence of fatty liver disease, a complication related to poor diet, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. For me, that's kind of the big kicker because I think you can have fatty liver disease without being super you know, unattractive
0: by Western standards. Yeah, you can take meth and be skinny, but still get fatty (laughs) liver disease because it's still in there. Yeah,
2: exactly right. So they deleted this gene, but they were like, okay, gene deletion, not for everybody. What can we do to turn this into a drug? So The drug is being called CPAC or CPACC, and it basically accomplishes the same thing as this gene deletion. It restricts the amount of magnesium transfer into mitochondria. It's promising enough that UT Health San Antonio has filed a patent application on the drug.
0: Yeah. I mean, every time I hear about stuff like this, it always feels like one of those cursed monkey paw wishes where like, you know, oh, you can take this drug and eat whatever you want and it won't have any impact on you. And I'm like, there's got to be an impact. We just haven't figured out what it is yet. And it's going to bite us because it always does.
3: I remember Olestra. Yeah, exactly. No problems with Olestra. Oh, wait a minute. Leaky butt. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, everything I know about how the powerhouse of the cell works is that (laughs) you want energy. You want stuff in there. And mice versus humans are not exposed to the same stressors in their daily lives. And there's a lot of things that cause us to actually leach magnesium. So many people are deficient. But, you know, we'll see. Ooh,
2: we're going to have the more and less magnesium wars. I mm-hmm. see yes. coming.
0: We'll split into the above ground and below ground <laughs> tribes of like who <laughs> heavily doses on magnesium and who never touches the stuff.
1: I'm just down <laughs> in magnesium mines. Exactly. Myself.
0: <laughs> magnesium
2: Max coming to theaters near you. Okay. Next link. Next, Next link. link.
1: This article comes to us from jstordaily.org, and we'll stay on the medical theme. Early doctors diagnose disease by looking at urine.
2: Oh, just like the olden times.
1: Yeah. So imagine the following scene. Someone shows up at a medieval physician's door with a flask of urine. Not their own, necessarily. <laughs> just... They foist the flask into the hands of a physician and demand a diagnosis. They declined to provide any details about the patient or their medical complaint, not wanting to muddy an objective science with such trivialities. From the 13th through the 16th century and sometimes beyond, quick urine-based diagnoses and treatment protocols were resoundingly demanded by patients and their loved ones. According to Michael Stolberg, a historian of early modern medicine, many physicians grew to revile the practice. Yet, in certain regions of medieval Europe, especially German-speaking areas, a physician that hesitated to diagnose a patient based off urine alone might be perceived as unskilled. (laughs) Uroscopy was first recorded in the 4th millennium BCE and became a common practice in the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. By the 13th century, the practice had been imbued with a perception of prestige and infallibility. There was hardly a, quote, greater source of glory to a medieval physician than the study of urine, wrote Andreas Linius, himself a medieval physician. Perhaps there was something theatrically satisfying about a learned man waving around a flask of pea, looking at it from all <laughs> angles, sniffing it, and making bold proclamations.
2: It just transferred over into sommelier, didn't it?
1: That's what right. I was right. Say. right. Yeah. sommelier. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And like a lot of this is sounding absurdly like divination just with urine. <laughs> yes, you know? right, like,
0: right. But
1: the charlatans had no qualms about gazing into the yellow liquid, gesticulating wildly, and making exact diagnoses and treatment recommendations on the spot. This performative certainty was reassuring to people at a time when true anatomical knowledge remained scant. Physicians were put into a bind, acquiesce to the demands to diagnose based off uroscopy alone, or lose the patient to a charlatan who would do what they were unwilling to do themselves. Physicians had to keep in mind that people might want to test their skills or even worse, outright make fools of them by substituting wine, whey, or animal (laughs) urine for urine. Uh,
0: Animal urine I can see getting tricked by. Whey and wine? Even a white wine. Like, it doesn't look like (laughs) pee. It looks like wine.
1: Yeah, and it smells like wine.
0: I mean, and you know, depending on how much you drink. Maybe it is coming out alcoholic, and so they're used to that.
1: (laughs) With one's reputation being of the utmost importance, it was a nightmare scenario. Quote the Euroskeptics, which is Uh. a great name.
3: (laughs) Right, not people Uh, skeptical of Europe. Yeah. Right,
1: right. (laughs) (laughs) Reported stories of physicians who became the laughing stock of the whole area after they had been tricked into diagnosing diseases from Malvasian wine, and then watched open mouthed as the patient or carrier. Drank the alleged urine with the greatest pleasure. Okay. (laughs) Michael R. McVaugh recounts how whole chapters of treatises guide physicians how to avoid being bamboozled by prospective uroscopy clients. By dipping a finger in the liquid discreetly and pretending to blow one's nose, physicians could ensure the liquid passed or failed the sniff test. Another Uh failsafe of the era was to stare intently at the courier who delivered the urine, trying to elicit a blush that would indicate (laughs) they were engaging in deceit.
3: It's the Larry David model. Right. staring at somebody.
1: (laughs) When all else fails, medieval physician Sigurist writes, say that he has an obstruction in the liver particularly use the word obstruction because they do not understand what it means and it helps greatly that a term is not understood by the people. (laughs) Oh my God. In the 17th century, Thomas Willis became the first person to record the sweet taste of urine in patients suffering from diabetes, though he mm-hmm. may have just been the first to publicly admit to tasting pee. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, his scientifically sound discovery based in uroscopy coincided with a rapid decline of the practice.
0: Well, and the tricky thing is that they're kind of not wrong in that you can diagnose a lot of things by not mm-hmm. by looking at it and gesturing. And I mean, you have to run actual tests on it. So like,
1: yeah. Yeah, you know it's useful, but you put it in a centrifuge or some other science device that I'm not familiar with. Right. <laughs> Anyways, hope you all enjoyed that article. Next link.
3: Next, Next link. link. This is from Discover the 1,200 buried bones in the Benjamin Franklin House.
0: row. Whoa. Are they all turkey legs? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> is that too much to hope? No. Okay.
3: They are all human bones. When the bones were discovered, it had us wondering. You know, was Ben Franklin a serial killer? <laughs> I knew he was a jack of all trades, right? But that's, right, that's right. taken it a bit far. Yeah. For more than two centuries, the bones have rested under the London home of Franklin. So the bones were first discovered in the late 90s, while the Craven Street home was under construction for conservation. The alarmed to staff called a coroner, but it was quickly discovered that the bones were more than a century old which isn't surprising if you're in London. Dig a few feet down and who knows what you'll find, Mm -hmm. right? So many things built on burial grounds. Uh, Researchers (laughs) then excavated a small pit in what is now called the seminary. But back in Franklin's day, it was just a small space in the back of the house that they called the murder room. Uh, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, the, The pit was no more than one meter wide by one meter deep they uncovered more than 1,200 bone fragments belonging to at least 15 people. So probably a little backstory on the house and Franklin is in order. When Franklin moved to London in 1757, he was already pretty famous and arrived well known as an agent of the William Penn family. So from 1757 to 1775, Franklin was just a boarder. So it's not really his house. It sounds like he was that guy that wouldn't get off your couch, and right, eats all your right. stuff, so, but occasionally <laughs> redeems himself by making some really cool crap, right? So he got really close to Polly, the daughter of his landlady. Apparently wrote some saucy letters. Ooh. Then Polly, I think she just saw him as a friend, married a man named William Hewson who was an anatomist famous for his discoveries in blood coagulation. Ah, the things people can be famous for <laughs> in the nice. 1700s, right? So keeping in mind that Houston was an anatomist and dissection wasn't fully legal until the 19th century, hmm. they needed a place to practice privately. So after Houston married Polly, frankly encouraged him to set up a private academy on Craven Street. So all those bones are more likely used for educational purposes.
0: Right. After they were stolen from their graves in the first place, because like. Correct. <laughs> yeah.
3: Correct. Right. They even had a euphemism for people who dug up graves. They called them resurrectionists. Oh. <laughs> yeah. it seems
0: like the opposite of what's happening, but OK.
3: <laughs> right, right, right. Or, you know, the anatomist may have just skipped a step and had direct arrangements with the hangman. Right. So right. it's not completely <laughs> who the remains come from, but Marcia Balistriano, the director of the Benjamin Franklin House says, quote, Franklin was a champion of science. He was supportive of young researchers and others that could exemplify his passion for knowledge and innovation. He probably loved the idea that this scientific work would have been going on. I guess he liked the smell too. Uh, I don't know. I can't yeah, imagine yeah. how bad. Yeah. <laughs> Covered up the general smell of the 1700s, I guess. That's yeah. right. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the mystery of this petroglyph-covered Alaskan beach, a rogue Earth and Neptune might have been found in older data, and the Stonehenge calendar shown to be a modern construct. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
3: I'm Waisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.